Hello and welcome back to Life's Biggest Questions. I'm Ron McKenzie Lafergie. Nuclear war has been the elephant in many a political room as of late. We've been discussing the likelihood of a nuclear attack recently, but what would happen if it actually did happen in the U.S.? Would they be able to survive and rebuild, or would it be the end of America as we know it? Hard to know, but very interesting to explore. So get ready, it's time to ask the question, can America survive a nuclear attack? The first and most important factor in determining America's survival is the severity of the attack. One atomic bomb yielding 20 kilotons worth of TNT would be far easier to deal with than several hydrogen bombs backing 50,000 kilotons each. If, as some fear, North Korea was to launch an attack, it would likely be closer to the former, with one or a small number of strikes from relatively weak bombs. However, it could still be quite devastating, particularly if placed properly. We need only look to the past to see how disturbingly effective nuclear weapons are, with the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II. However, nukes are difficult to aim, and America is awfully large. Chances are, if North Korea did launch an attack on the U.S., the damage would be fairly minimal and would be rather easy to survive as a country. On the other hand, if the attack came from a more powerful country with more nuclear capabilities like Russia or China, the damage could be far greater. A 50 megaton hydrogen bomb like the Soviet Tsar Bomba from 1961 could kill or injure almost the entire population of the mainland of Hawaii with a thermal radiation radius of 51.4 kilometers. Several of these concentrated in major cities like New York or Chicago and one in Washington could bring the United States to its knees particularly if it was followed up with a full-on invasion. If millions of citizens died and the government was taken out, there's a good chance that America would crumble. And of course, with enough attacks, the entirety of the U.S. could be decimated, making it more or less impossible to rebuild. There are, however, a few things that the United States can do to avoid this. First and foremost, missile defense is incredibly important to prevent the bombs from falling. This will be the subject of a future video, however, so I will leave it at that for now. But there's more America can do than just stopping the bombs from touching down. For example, advanced warning would allow important members of the government to take shelter in a bunker. While some may glibly joke about us being better off without them, most agree that post-bombing reconstruction and retaliation would be made far easier with a functioning government. This way, even if several nukes were to land, there would remain a system to give support and aid to the survivors. At the same time, this would allow the government to try to defend against further bombings, and perhaps counterattack against the aggressor. However, even if the means to rebuild were there, there's a chance that America as we know it still would not survive. American politics are currently very tense and hectic, with identity politics politics and extremism, deteriorating relations between groups. There's a chance that a nuclear strike, regardless of the severity, could be the catalyst that causes a split in the American people. Whether it resulted in civil war, mass immigration, or the secession of certain states, the states may not remain quite so united following a nuclear attack. And now we return to our question, can America survive a nuclear attack? Well, it would depend on the number and severity of the strikes. One small nuke would be unlikely to cause any real damage to the country, but a coordinated series of strikes in important locations does have a very good chance to bring the country down. And of course, enough bombs could make the country unlivable, in which case, you'd better start stocking up on bottle caps. There are certainly preventative measures the government can take, but if relations remain as tense as they currently are, they may not have a population to lead. Thank you for watching Life's Biggest Questions. I hope this was interesting and informative, and maybe even inspired you to look into it further on your own. If you like this video, please thumbs up and subscribe to the channel down below. And while you're down there, let me know your thoughts on the potential for nuclear strikes in the comment section. Until next time, I'm Ron McKenzie Lafergie with Life's Biggest Questions, wishing you the best of luck on your quest for answers.
70 years ago, the nuclear bombs dropped over Hiroshima and Nagasaki exploded and to this day remain the only use of nuclear weapons for warfare. But with around 15,000 warheads remaining in the world, what happens if we have a nuclear war? The impact of a single nuclear bomb depends on many factors like the weather, weapon design, geographical layout of where the bomb hits, and if it explodes in the air or on the ground. Approximately 35% of the energy comes in the form of thermal radiation or heat. Since thermal radiation travels at approximately the speed of light, the flash of light and the heat come several seconds before the blast wave. And this causes flash blindness to anyone looking, a temporary blindness of a few minutes. With a one megaton bomb, which is 80 times larger than the Hiroshima bomb, but much smaller than many modern nuclear weapons, those 21 kilometers away would experience flash blindness on a clear day and even up to 85 kilometers away on a clear night. Thermal radiation burns happen closer to the bomb with first degree burns occurring around 11 kilometers, second degree burns at 10 kilometers, and third degree burns destroying skin tissue at 8 kilometers. Third degree burns that cover over 24% of the body will likely be fatal without quick medical care. These distances are variable depending on the weather and what clothing you're wearing. White clothing, for example, can reflect some of the energy while darker clothes absorb it. At its center, the Hiroshima explosion was estimated to be 300,000 degrees Celsius, which is over 300 times hotter than the temperature bodies are cremated at. This intense heat reduces a body to its basic elements. The radiation from the blast also behaves like sunlight, so so objects cast shadows where the radiation doesn't directly hit. But most of the energy released in a nuclear explosion is in the blast, which drives air away from the site of the explosion, creating a sudden change in air pressure that can crush objects or knock them down. If we use a one megaton bomb as an example again, within a six kilometer radius, there would be an estimated 180 tons of force on the wall of every two-story building with wind speeds of 255 kilometers an hour. Within a one kilometer radius, the peak pressure is four times greater and wind speeds reach 756 kilometers an hour. The human body can endure this amount of pressure. However, the winds would create fatal collisions with nearby objects, so deaths would largely be from collapsed buildings. All this at one megaton. Compare that with the largest nuclear bomb ever detonated, the 50 megaton Tsar Bomba dropped on an isolated island in Russia, and you're looking at 3,333 Hiroshima bombs combined. If you happen to survive all this, now you have to worry about radiation. Now, not all radiation is harmful. We're exposed to different forms of radiation every day, like our phones, but ionizing radiation at the center of a nuclear bomb has enough energy to rip electrons from atoms. But the amount of radiation you encounter is greatly affected by whether you're outside or inside, in a wooden structure or a cement structure, and so on. Exposure to 600 REM radiation has a 90% chance of creating fatal illness, while a dose of 450 REM is estimated to create a fatal dose within half of those affected. But even those who recover still suffer long term. Molecular bonds and strands of DNA are broken, and while most repair, around a quarter don't, which can result in future genetic mutations and increase probability of cancer. Then there is the fallout. When a bomb is detonated on or near the surface of the earth, the blast creates a crater and the material that used to be deposited in the crater is carried up into the air as vaporized dirt particles forming the familiar mushroom cloud. These particles become radioactive and eventually condense and come back down as fallout. Depending on wind conditions, radioactive fallout can travel for hundreds of miles. And though it can fall in the form of black rain, for the most part you can't detect fallout with your senses. 
Luckily, fallout radiation decays fairly quickly, and within two weeks, material will have declined to about 1% of its initial radiation level. But you would have to stay in a shelter until then. So what if a multi-bomb nuclear war broke out? A recent study imagined what 100 detonated warheads, the approximate size of a Hiroshima bomb, would look like if India and Pakistan went to war. These two nations have relatively small stockpiles of weapons compared to countries like the US, Russia, and China. However, this would still do huge damage. After the nuclear exchange, five megatons of black carbon would immediately enter the atmosphere, causing global temperatures to fall and receive 9% less rain annually. Though these changes sound small, they could be enough to trigger crop failures and famine. A separate study estimated 2 billion people would starve in the wake of a 100 A-bomb war. So what should you do? We created a video called How to Survive a Nuclear War that looks into strategies for safety in the event of a nuclear bomb near you, which you can click on here to check out. Don't forget to subscribe for more weekly science videos every Thursday, and click that bell to make sure you get notifications for our videos. We'll see you next week. So the idea of a nuclear war is pretty intense and not something that very many people on this earth have ever had to experience, but we want to put together a list of things that you can do to prepare and to be prepared if it should ever happen. And the first thing you have to think about is an emergency supply kit. So first of all, you want to think, do you have water ready? Do you have non-perishable fluid items that can last you? And you also want to think about things like batteries. So when a nuclear bomb goes off, it gives off an EMP or an electromagnetic pulse, which can disable things like your cell phones, cell towers, computers, so you're not going to have access to communications, but things like battery-powered radios are going to become really important. So you can find out information, hear other people of what's going on in the world, and batteries ultimately to power any devices are going to be really important since most communications and electronics are going to be gone. And even though the distance of an electromagnetic pulse is not definitive, experts estimate up to thousands of miles away your electronic devices can be affected. So the next thing you need to worry about is shelter. And so there's a difference between a blast shelter and a fallout shelter. For the blast, what you're going to need to do is get as much concrete in between you and the explosion as possible. So if you're in a house, get in the basement. If you're in a high rise, get to the middle of the building away from windows. When it comes to the fallout, you don't have to have a specific shelter, but you want to have a thick roof and thick walls. If you're in a home, you want to blockade all the windows because that's a way that fallout could actually get into your house. You're going to need two weeks of food and water because that's how long it's going to take the radioactive materials to decay. So you're going to be hanging out in your fallout shelter for two weeks and after that you can come back outside and see what's happened to the world. But let's say you're outside when the blast first goes off. Chances are you might still have some time to get in a better situation. So when the bomb goes off, the blast travels the first mile in five seconds and the second mile in the next five seconds and so on. So if you see a flash or know the blast is coming, the best thing you can do is get on the ground face down and put your hands behind your head and brace yourself. This was the method that was taught to kids in school during the Cold War because they thought that at any moment a nuclear weapon could go off. So if they saw the flash or felt the blast, the role was to get under the desks, face down, hands over heads, and brace. We are all very curious people, but it's for your own safety that you do not look at the blast. Even if you're observing the blast just in your periphery, it can cause temporary flash blindedness. And this can be a really big issue when you're trying to figure out how to find shelter. If you look directly at the blast, you can have macular retinal scarring, which can also decrease your vision in the future. Next up, if you can get indoors, you want to remove all your clothing because this can stop the radioactive material from spreading and can remove up to 90% of it off of your body. And then you want to shower. You want to gently blow your nose, wipe your face down, but 
but be careful not to scratch yourself. And you can use shampoo, but don't use conditioner as it bonds the radioactive material and makes it harder to come off your body. If you can't shower at all, the best thing you can do is just take a warm, wet cloth and gently wipe yourself down. You always need to think about whether or not you're in the best place you can be. A new mathematical study of nuclear fallout found that after a blast, you have half an hour to find the best shelter. So if you're stuck in a shelter and you don't think it's up to par, and you know someone who has a better shelter and you can get there in under 30 minutes, you need to head there immediately. Finally, if you need medical attention, try and find it because it can be the difference of life and death, but also you have to be pretty realistic in this situation because there's no international or federal standard on how to help a lot of casualties who have been affected by radioactive uh, destruction. So ultimately people get put in two groups, those who are expected to live and those who are expected to die. This is a horrible situation to be in, but hopefully these tips will help you if you ever find yourself in need of them. Number 10. Switzerland With mountainous terrain, a strong tradition of neutrality, widespread bunkers, and a heavily armed populace, Switzerland has undoubtedly proven itself as a safe haven during Europe's bloody past. While Switzerland shares borders with Germany, France, and Italy, which are all locations where nukes undoubtedly will be landing if World War III were to break out, Switzerland is somewhat shielded from these danger zones thanks to the mountains surrounding Switzerland. This means that the Swiss could take cover up high in the mountains as nukes land all around them. Number 9. Tuvalu. Tuvalu is an island nation deep within the Pacific Ocean that is very remote and neutral. Tuvalu's extreme isolation helps the nation remain politically not aligned and its small population and negligible resources means no major power will have any reason to attack Tuvalu. Tuvalu will probably just be ignored if World War III was to start. And, unlike many other island nations, Tuvalu's locals produce and consume mainly their own food and goods, making Tuvalu uniquely self-sufficient. Number 8. New Zealand New Zealand is one of the most secluded yet developed nations in the world. New Zealand has a stable democracy and is not deeply involved in any armed conflicts. And the mountainous terrain of New Zealand can provide shelter in the unlikely event trouble were to ever visit the New Zealand islands. New Zealand also has enough local food supplies as well as clean water and fertile soil to support itself in the short term. And New Zealand's peaceful foreign policy gained it the fourth spot on the 2015 Global Peace Index. Number 7. Bhutan Despite Bhutan's shared borders with two potential combatants of a third world war, China and India, its unique location makes it an excellent shelter for an apocalyptic conflict. Surrounded by the Himalayan mountains, Bhutan is one of the most secluded landlocked countries in the world. And since joining the United Nations in 1971, the country has maintained a Swiss-like aversion to foreign entanglements of any kind. Bhutan also has no diplomatic relationships with the United States. In fact, only two states, Bangladesh and neighboring India, even have embassies in Bhutan's capital. Number 6. Chile Chile is one of South America's most stable and prosperous nations. And Chile ranks higher than all other Latin American nations in human development. It is also shielded by the nearly impenetrable Andes Mountains to the west of its borders. 
To top that off, the southern hemisphere tends to have less polluted air than the northern hemisphere because it has less cities, less population, and less industry. And the air masses of the northern and southern hemispheres tend to stay segregated from each other. Combine this with Chile's air being continually replenished by clean Antarctic air, Chile may stay cleaner than the war-torn nations to its north in the event of a third world war. Number 5. Iceland Iceland is a country so peaceful and neutral that it was ranked number one in the 2015 Global Peace Index. Iceland also shares no land borders with any other nations and is far removed from most of the world. If nukes were to fall around the world, it's possible Iceland may be left alone during the initial conflict. And even in a worst case scenario, Iceland has mountainous terrain to take shelter in. Number 4. Denmark it is likely that if any conflict were to spread across Europe, Denmark would suffer greatly because of its involvement in NATO as well as their dangerous proximity to major nations of the European Union. However, this is not entirely true thanks to one crucial exception, Greenland. Just like Iceland, Greenland is remote, mountainous and politically non-aligned meaning the population of Greenland will be able to take cover and will have an easier time trying to survive a third world war. Number 3. Malta Malta is a tiny island nation in the Mediterranean Ocean and is in essence a small island fortress. Throughout history, from Malta's days as a crusader state to even the second world war, empires have tried and failed to capture Malta, meaning that an invasion of Malta would be extremely costly. And finally, Malta's relatively small size wouldn't justify wasting an entire nuclear missile on it, meaning Malta may just be ignored by the biggest combatants of a third world war. Number 2. Ireland While Ireland is a prosperous and developed nation, it does not have strong ties to any of the potential combatants of a third world war. Ireland tends towards a policy of independence in foreign policy, as a result, Ireland is not a member of NATO and has a long-standing policy of military neutrality. And according to Irish law, in order for Ireland to enter any external military conflicts, their involvement must be approved by the UN, Ireland's government, as well as the Irish legislature. Number 1. Fiji The remote island nation of Fiji lies deep within the vast expanses of the Pacific Ocean which isolates Fiji from any potential invaders. And just like Tuvalu, Fiji has a small population, is neutral in foreign affairs, and does not have any resources within its borders to justify an invasion of the islands. To top that off, for thousands of years the Fiji Islands supported human settlements, and could likely continue to support human life after a worldwide conflict. If you want to survive a nuclear winter, all you have to do is subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. That's not entirely true, but you should go ahead and do it anyway, just to be safe. And if you want to hear my voice some more, you can go check out my channel in the description. And we'll see you all next time. This is Donald Trump a few minutes ago saying the following. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated that the nuclear button is on his desk at all times. Will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I, too, have a nuclear button, but it is a much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works. Your thoughts, Congressman? 
threatening a country with nuclear attack, which is annihilation of literally hundreds of thousands of people, boasting, that's incredibly destabilizing, unimaginably irresponsible. And it just really, you just wonder whether any head of state of any size would do this, let alone the most powerful military in the world. I mean, it really is shocking. But shocking for Trump is just, uh, I don't know, Tuesday. Hey there, I'm Chris Hayes from MSNBC. Thanks for watching MSNBC on YouTube. If you want to keep up to date with the videos we're putting out, you can click subscribe just below me or click over on this list to see lots of other great videos. Working like a woman, I have been listening to your station on my lunch break today, and I have to say, I love, love, love what your um, what your broadcast is saying. I love the one that I just listened to um, about the marketing and um, how you can change people's mindsets on the pricing and stuff. I just I get so much out of your station. I just wanted to call and say thank you so much for sharing all of that useful information. Definitely for me, since I am in marketing and sales, I'm always looking for new ways to market things and ways to think about things. And um, I just love your station because it definitely gives me an open mind and it gives me a better perspective of different things. So thank you for that. Hey, Sheena, Diane. Thanks so much for that call in. And I'm really glad you're enjoying the segments and getting some educational value out of them. What I try to do is take a topic that is relevant either based on today's news or um, based on what I had posted the day before and preferably both and tie them together and try to create this stream of knowledge that lets you open your mind and, and really look at what's happening around you. So I'm educating myself and trying to share that information with everyone else out there and I'm really glad you're, you're finding it useful. Thanks for calling in. Ronnie, hi, it's Maria. I just wanted to let you know that my station's kind of serious today. Events in social media have uh, reminded me about some segments that I did about teen suicide and stuff like that. So I just wanted to give you a heads up that if you are in a lighthearted mood, don't stop by my station today because I'm going to the dark side. So, um, I don't know. I hope you're having a good day and I'm kind of serious today, but there's hope. There's hope. And all I can do is uh, talk to my kids about serious stuff and shine the light on the darkness too. And the misuses of social media are just very disturbing, but, um, but there, there's good stuff happening too. But today, today I'm a little on the dark side. So I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Hey, Maria, thanks so much for that call in. And, well, if you listen to my station today, I guess I'm kind of on the dark side, too. But I've actually been posting some things about social media the past several days and, you know, the terrible effects that it has on our brain and our thinking and our emotional state. And, of course, that includes teen suicide. So, um, you know, I guess we're thinking about the same things. Good to hear from you. How are you doing today? This is Johnny Haynes from Riverside, California. Have a blessed day. Hey, Johnny Haynes. I'm doing wonderful today, and I hope you are as well, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Okay, so what is it going to take 
for us to stop blindly following people who don't know what they're doing, don't care what they're doing, and certainly don't have our best interests at heart. But before you say, oh, but I'm not blindly following, I, 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 I don't think any of that, I, I don't agree with them, okay, what are you doing to speak out against it? What are you doing to stop it? Because if you're not doing anything about it, I'll use Z's favorite word, you're complicit. If you go back and listen to my episodes over the last week, they all tie together. They all build on top of each other. And um, yeah, I started with some segments on anxiety and how people react in the case of different anxieties. And I gave the example of global warming, climate change. You know, why aren't we doing more about it? And a lot of it has to do with the fact that gives a lot of us anxiety. And the way that people deal with anxiety is one of two ways. Either they take action because it makes them feel better, or they basically hide. They hide their head in the sand to pretend like it's not happening because that makes them feel better. And that can be applied to any issues that we're having in the world right now. And, you know, just for an example, what I just posted, because it's been you know, of course, in Twitter, and the big your button is bigger than my button thing, nuclear war. Now, of course, that's going to make us all a little anxious. So what are we going to do? Are we going to pretend like it's not happening and hide our heads in the sand? Or are we going to do something about it? Are we going to stand up and say, stop, enough, what can we do to stop this madness? So take some time to really think about it. Think about what you're doing. Think about what your feelings and your thoughts are on, you know, the, the topics of the world today. And if you're not agreeing with them, don't go along with them. Do something about it.